Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we review our favorite RPGs, collectible card games, MMOs, video games, PC games, and bring up interesting topics and things that we'd like to share with everyone. Sit back and enjoy the show. This is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the 5th Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Shut up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm Dave Van Dyke. Uh, I'm a science fiction author, mostly self-published. I have a few books uh, with a small publisher, but I'm mostly self-published. I started in 2012. I write science fiction, mysteries, a little bit of uh, other things. About 30 books, and I make a living. And that's the thing that I always tell people. I say, are you published or this or that? I say, I make a living. <laughs> Uh, I'm Jill Knowles. Um, I write uh, fantasy, science fiction, horror, um, a lot of short stories out there. I have six uh, full-length books that are in erotic romance, um, small pub. Um, I'm working right now. I'm working on a paranormal uh, cozy mystery that I really want to take super mainstream. Um, I've been doing this for gosh a long time. I think my first book came out in 2008. Well, I forgot to bring my <laughs> I know, I was wondering if I'm Erica Lewis, and um, I, I write a lot of different things. I started off in television, where I was working for about 15 years, and then um, moved over into comics and graphic novels, and my first novel from Tor Publishing, Tor Books, just came out uh, in March. Called? Called Game of Shadows. Thank you, Pierre. I'll grab tattoos. They made it pretty cool. Yeah, so that's my first novel, actually. I'm H. Paul Hansinger. I write military science fiction slash space opera with uh, lots of blood, gore, and nuclear explosions. Um, sort of think master and commander in space with a uh, healthy dose of Tom Clancy. Uh, my work is, I have the so-called Man of War trilogy that is published by 47 North Books. My, I also have a prequel to the trilogy that's self-published and a sequel to the prequel that will be self-published coming out in the next uh, couple of weeks. The first prequel is a novel, I mean a no novella, the second one is, is a short novel actually. Um, and my fourth book, uh, continuing the trilogy, should be out sometime next year, probably late next year, the way things are going. I've had some, uh, some health issues. And my dad worked in television 20 years. There you go. And we're talking about uh, creating compelling characters. So what's the first thing everybody does when they start developing? 
I might stuff tends to start out with what would happen if you know um, what would happen if a uh, short story I was just talking about uh, Roger I have a short story that I, I'm playing with a, no, sorry. Uh, I'm playing with an idea of um, doing a full-length novel but I don't know if I can do it with this guy you know that can I write a, a story about a person who is sexually attracted to children who will not ever act on it but can I write from his point of view and I did you know and and I think it's one of the best characters I've ever created it's also the hardest thing I ever wrote um, so, so here's but a yeah that, that what if can I do this here's a question we were talking about compelling characters but that may, may not be a sympathetic character is there a difference what would you say the difference is um, a compelling character, you have to want to read. You don't have to want to like. Um, you know, Severus Snape, nobody likes Severus Snape, but he's the best character. You know, he's a fascinating character. He's compelling. You want to know what this guy is thinking, why he's doing what he's doing. You don't have to like him. Dark Vader. Until they ruined him. <laughs> Until they ruined him, right. Uh, I mean, you know, you, in the real movies. Uh, how do you start with your Oh gee, I'm a total, I'm a total pantser. I try to plot, but you know, I mostly pants. So I think I tend to back into my best characters. Um, has anybody ever read? I'm, you know, fishing for compliments, right? Has anybody ever read Plague Wars in my books? That's all right. Um, yeah, odds are, even though I sold many books, the odds of how many people have actually read it by percentage is relatively small. Um, but one of my best and most popular characters is an anti-hero, you know, a cruel, vicious man who yet is the is kind of the necessary one. He's, he's kind of the, the Wolverine or the Punisher, if you put it in, in comic book terms. The guy who will go in there and do the stuff that nobody else will do. And then everybody else loves to hate on him. And then he goes, yeah, but without me, you guys would have been toast. Uh, and so, you know, to me, that, that guy ended up as, uh, and his, his handle, if you want to call it, is uh, Spooky or Spectre. But uh, he, he ended up being the one that nobody else, uh, they'll do stuff nobody else will do. And that's what people, oddly enough, tend to like or tend to feel is most compelling. Um, I would ask the audience, who who are you, what do you think makes the most compelling character? What do you what what characters do you just I mean if you pick one character in science fiction or fantasy, who would that be, and what makes him him or her compelling? Maybe anti-hero. Yeah, anti-heroes. I think anti-heroes are really good at that. I think a good example of that is Iron Man. Okay. I was just thinking, I, I mean, just, Tony Stark is probably the most annoying <laughs> drunk. I mean, in the comics, anyway. In the movies, but, you know. Yeah. Um, he's probably the most anti-hero hero, and yet you're always rooting for Tony Stark, right? Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm plugging our... our I'm sorry. Go ahead. At the risk of sounding like I'm plugging our guest of honor, the most compelling at least military character, because that's what I'm coming into, that I've ever encountered in science fiction is Grand Admiral Thrawn. Because, My son would agree with you. A, military genius. B, I mean, he looks at art, he looks at their art, and then figures out how they're going to fight their battles. I mean, just that connection. Where did he come up with that? 
connection. And then the combination of he's so honorable and he's so evil. I mean, this this he knows how to lead the lead his men by you know he promotes the people who do well, he punishes the people who do poorly, and yet he's as cold as ice. This 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 swirl of brilliance and contradictions and moral ambiguity. I mean, what isn't interesting about it? I mean, I can't think of a single sentence written about Grand Admiral Thrawn that wasn't interesting. And I think when you're, for me, when, oh yeah, one of the characters that really stood out to me was Hamilton in the musical, because yeah. my friend was talking about how, like, the actual historical figure, he did not like Hamilton because Hamilton did some pretty shifty things. Right. Well, yeah. Um, but that's part of what makes him such a great character, and since the musical is based on Hamilton's actual life, it really stood out like good character, not necessarily great person. Yeah. Well, people are ambiguous. There's always an ambiguity to everyone. Even, I, I swear, Abraham Lincoln has got to have some evil bit of, <laughs> of awful nastiness festering inside his soul somewhere. Ruthless, at least. At least. And he was a shitty father. At least. <laughs> you know, there's a moral ambiguity to everybody. You can't make you know, the whole, you can't make your characters a Mary Sue. Yeah, everyone knows what Mary Sue right, is, right? Yeah. Okay, just making sure. <laughs> I had someone in the last a couple conventions ago didn't, didn't know what I was talking about. But, you know, there's got to be some moral ambiguity. There's got to be some conflict, some tension inside the character. There've got to be things inside the character that are at odds with other things inside the character. Not all conflicts are intra-character or inter-character. A lot of conflicts are also going to be inter-character. And, you know, we're all a bundle of contradictions if you look at yourself honestly. So, I think a compelling character has got to have contradictions that are, you know, interestingly at war with one another somehow. So, you can't just read the first two paragraphs about the guy and say, oh, well, I know what he's going to do next. Well, and the character also has to be relatable. Um, I was thinking Hannibal Lecter. There's a classic. Hannibal Lecter as a character would not have been as popular as he was if he hadn't been able to make a connection with the Clary Starling character. If that connection hadn't happened, he would have just been a stock bad guy. But because there was a connection there, there was a real connection there, whether you read the book or saw the movies, you could see it. It was there. It made him human. It made him somebody that you could relate to. As horrific as he was, as horrible as he was, you know, dreadful, dreadful things, and he was the favorite character. Freaked Thomas Harris out that people liked this character, and so he tried to make Hannibal even worse. You know, and with the book Hannibal, which is a sucky book, but it backfired on him because he continued to make that character interesting and relatable. And I think when I um, when I personally start to create a character or invent something, I am 
television minded, so I'm not as much. I'm a prancer about halfway through my outline, and I go off outline, and I'll go a different direction. But I usually pretty much outline everything. I start with a log line about what the idea is going to be in my head. You know, what is it that I want to say? What's this world? Why is this world different from another world? And then, what's the most interesting character to tell that story through? And no matter how many times I'm, you know, you 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 invent a character nine times out of ten, I end up writing the first chapter in order to figure out who that character is in first person, even though I may not end up writing it in first person. And then I go back and I figure out all the little minor details about this person, really what makes up this person. So there's a there's a comic series I'm writing right now with an actor named John Barrowman. And so, <laughs> so John, it's, we, it's coming out with, uh, well, they haven't announced that yet. But anyway, Legendary's picked it up. So Legendary's Yay. doing it. Uh, so Legendary, uh, Legendary's doing the comic and the, the, the television part of it eventually. Um, but in it, you know, it was funny because it was something for him to be in as like a, he's, he's starring in the comic in that way there's gonna be his image um, but also it's about a guy who's cursed to lose everything on his 40th birthday and but he's a real asshole and you know, not John the character so you know you're not feeling I mean you kind of feel bad for him as everything just falls away he loses his not death she doesn't die but his wife leaves him his kid vanishes everything kind of disappears but it in the, in the hard part was is he didn't realize how much he cared about those things until after they were suddenly gone. And so it was funny going through the process of creating that because, you know, when you're working with someone who's actually going to portray this character, it's like, well, why does he have to be such a jerk? It's like, no, John, he has to be a flawed character because otherwise, what is the journey he's going to be taking? And so sometimes I think when, when I personally create a character, I have to figure out where their arc's going to go related to the story in order to give them enough the kind of backstory that fills in the blanks on that and makes them compelling. Um, and what I love is when a writer uh, surprises me. You know what I mean? And like it's completely not the backstory of the person I would have ever, you know. But it still has to make sense. Yeah, it still has to fit through the story. At least I, for me. I just thought of one, obviously not mine. Uh, who's watched The Blacklist? few people no. you know Sam or uh, Raymond Reynolds uh, yeah there was I mean I loved him up until a certain point and I won't put a spoiler but if anybody who's watched it knows the point of which of the series when when I went from loving him to hating him and I and really being angry with him and the writers but I can tell you up until that point the great thing wasn't it wasn't that he was in between good and evil is that he, you didn't know necessarily when he was going to be good and when he was going to be evil. I think the compelling characters for me are the ones that are that sit at the intersection. You know, you've got your good guy and he's always there, and you got your bad guy and he's always there. But the ones who stay in the middle, and I don't just mean sit in the middle in a gray, I mean that they're half black and half white, mm -hmm. or they're checkerboarded, and you're not quite sure where they're going to go. Uh, think of Loki and the Thor. Sometimes he's with you, sometimes he's against you. Uh, you know who else would be those types? Uh, where you Deadpool. Deadpool, right? Yeah. You know the ones who can who are when you really stick them to the wall, they're they're basically good. But the, who they are might be good, but they're going to do a lot of evil along the way. Some or sometimes it's flip flops. Something David said that reminds me when he was talking about sitting and moving. Uh, it reminded me that you're. A compelling character has to go somewhere. 
you know, they can't stay. I mean, not that not that your character, the one you're talking about, does, but what, what I'm talking about is characters have to develop as they go. At least your lead characters have to develop. You know, I like to, at several points in, since I'm writing a series, I've got to keep you interested in Max Robichaux through multiple books. And so I've got to think, okay, in this book, Max learns this. Max learns that. Max figures out the other thing. Max is overconfident and has his ass handed to him. You know, um, people have to develop. People change because we're all living beings. And if your character starts out at point A and stays at point A, he can stay in the same sort of gray place between good and evil, but there has to be some change, some development, some progress to keep you interested, to keep him compelling because he is alive. I'm going to totally pick a fight with Paul here. I don't mind and, and the entire uh, yeah. Master of Fine Arts establishment <coughs> and, and give you one example. Lee Child. Jack Reacher never freaking changes. He's the same guy okay. in thirty-five. And I'm going to tell you, it kind of bores me. Okay, <laughs> take right. the wrong way. Right, but you're but you're an artist me. and an author. So you're an artist and an author. Right. Okay. So the question is, are we writing for ourselves at, at a certain level of sophistication, if you want to call it that, or are we writing for an audience? And I'm not saying y'all are unsophisticated. I'm saying that that. Authors and readers have, are different creatures, just as a television person and a viewer, because I'm just a viewer, is a different creature. And I'll tell you, people can be very successful writing the same character that never changes and never develops over and over if they're a popular character. Yeah, Twilight. That's absolutely true. However, the problem with that theory is that Paul Hunsinger, as a writer, if he tried to do that, would bore himself to death. Which is what he was saying. So it's so, so you know, writing I, for ourselves. It, yeah, I mean, you well, know, there's the internal journey, they call it the external journey, right? That's what you're Exactly. Doing. I have to stay the interested in what I'm doing it. to keep doing it. Yeah. That's great, but no, just don't, we need to not lie to ourselves and say you it's are for the I, reader. I agree with you. You're absolutely <laughs> correct. I agree with you to the extent that. Because most readers don't want to see Harry Potter grow up. They want to stay him, see him stay in Hogwarts for his entire life. They don't really want to see him move on. They want to see him stay there for book after you know, book after book. Well, that that one character is the only one to me that had no arc in the books. Like I don't, I never felt he changed from book one. And it was brilliant. Except all the other characters had a great arc in terms of their emotional journeys, but I never felt like Harry. He was always sort of this, that, you know, kid always trying to do the well, right thing. But, you know, we all have different audiences, too. And my audience is overwhelmingly ex-military, a bunch of engineers, people in technical, people in aerospace, uh, people who are students of leadership. And a lot of people read my books for the leadership development aspects of the books and they expect to watch Max Robichaud develop as a leader. They expect to watch him teach his crew to grow into their roles. They're looking for I mean I get these emails and that's people saying that's what they're reading it for. So I understand that there are there's a lot of literature that sells a lot more stuff than I sell. 
um, where you can have a character like Harry Potter who never excited I always yeah I love the books I love the books I love Dumbledore I love Snape I like uh, what's their name uh, actually I was uh, Ms. McGonagall Ms. McGonagall is my favorite character in the whole thing because she reminds me of an aunt um, even talks like her um, but these people can be very successful but there are people who write things with audiences who expect certain kinds of development. Well, it's like romance. I mean, when you're writing, and I write YA crossover novels, so right, most of my stuff taps into both YA, even at the comic level, and, mm -hmm. and adult, so it's much crossover. And it, there's not in a, it, there's not a, it's an emotion I don't want to do romance. An emotional journey. It's very it, emotional. It, but isn't the, the romance journey, huh? and pardon me because I'm not a romance writer, but isn't the romance journey usually from A, it's A, B, C, and that's the end of the book, and the difficulty tends to be in series. How do you keep that going? Because you either have to switch partners, or you have to start over, or you have to split it into three books. Um, or I think the perfect example of that is, is something like Outlander in terms of how you keep a romance going. I mean, I don't... Her, Sean McGuire's uh, yeah. uh, October Day series. She's got mm -hmm. she had a, a, a three book romance and then killed that guy. You know, yeah. and now she's got a seven book romance. Well, my, um, my seven books with the same basic two persons. Yeah, because they're um, outlanders on They're urban yeah. fantasy. They're not Sheldon yeah. Okay. My, my wife has they're, written twenty six romance novels, not conventionally published, self published, but she makes a decent living doing it. And um, but there's she a has a different person arc, a twenty-six book arc, right? It is a twenty. They are all set in the same universe. Okay. That's what they're saying. But they're fantasy, <laughs> and each it's a different heroine each time. It's a heroine and three different guys each time. They're aliens, and they need three guys in one day. <laughs> they share a soul, <laughs> and, they, they, and you know they their soul is joined in the woman, and it's a. It's, <laughs> Lots of hot sex, but it's also. But anyway, um, that's how she's she sustains it. But each book, in fact, I had to tell her this. She said, "She says, Paul, I'm kind of lost." Kathy, remember, your book is about the emotional journey of your heroine from discovery through learning to through meeting her male set to the. Or whatever. Yeah, to whatever, to whatever, to whatever. And then their conflicts, and but her emotional journey. And you have to help the reader understand where she is emotionally at each point. And like, and she, and there's like 40 different points. She really, you know, differentiates the whole thing. It's all very clear. But there's a progress. Have you guys read Sherilyn Kenyon's, like the Dark Hunter novels or um, Chronicles of Nick, which is the spin off YA series of hers? She does a similar thing where it's, in, it's one universe and she's got a couple different series of, of these kinds of things. Um, and she, especially in her early books, I'd say the, the deep dive into who these characters were in their backstory is what really makes her characters unforgettable i mean to the point where you're just you're you're literally living with these characters and you're so inside their head because she's she's 
usually these characters are, are 10,000 years old, right? And they're wandering around New Orleans. And you're, just, you're like, oh, this is awesome, right? And they're funny and they're eating beignets and you're just totally in with them. And, but it's, and, and it's a lot of romance, yeah, is a big part of it and action, which she does really well. Um, but her books are really good examples for me when I started uh, writing of characters that you could just like literally live and breathe. You just, because she details so much about that. Well, and uh, romance gets a lot of unfair um, nastiness direction towards <laughs> it. Oh God, it's just a romance. Well, you know what? You know going into a romance, you're gonna have a happy, happy ending. These people are gonna get together. If these characters aren't amazing, if they aren't detailed and real and you know and lovable and hateable, nobody's gonna read that book. You know, you don't read a romance for the story; read it for the characters. So they're genres. And well, they're yeah, but but you have to create just really good characters because the story is the same basic story, whether it's set in space or you know in the old west or in the regency era you've got the same basic story it's the characters that that bring it to life and so um i think romance has some of the best characters you'll encounter yeah i think those are well developed um, here's a question for you how do you when your guys are developing and gals are developing um characters how do you decide what they look like I'm of the school of this minimum minimum description school, and I know some people, and it's not right or wrong, it's just my the way I look at it. Uh, part of that is because I don't want to, I don't want to have to hit certain diversity marks. Uh, you know, my books try to embrace everybody from every point of view and every race, creed, color, religion, but I don't want that to be a focus, and I don't want anybody to be able to criticize me on that basis. So I give people hints about what people are, uh, but I leave that mostly to the imagination. And that's partly the political environment that we're in, and that's partly just a personal preference, because some of my favorite books are the ones that describe the least, that give you the most imagination. But other people well, my, are different. Yeah. Uh, one of the key hooks to my books is that my starship captain is Cajun. So I play with that. And so there are certain ethnic characteristics of Cajuns, and so you know I, those are those are described. Except my guy is a pure Cajun, so he's got more height to him than your average Cajun. And then his his sidekick has an uh, Arabic-sounding name, and I mentioned that he's part Turkish and part Arabian and a little European mixed in, and that he could fit in on almost any planet. And that's so you know those things kind of dictated appearances. Um, I had an image in my mind of what my guy looks like, and then you know the publisher comes in and shows me all these pictures of the guy they want to put on the cover, and these guys are all too good looking. <laughs> my guy's got kind of big ears, and if any of you know what spacecraft designer Max Faget looked like, put some height on him, and that's kind of my guy with hair. Uh, um, they said no. No, so he's got to be. So what about you, ladies? Do you tend to describe a lot uh, in detail? Um, I always mentally cast the the part, but I try not to give a lot of details. I give hair color, I'll give eye color, um, but I like to do things like um, associate a particular scent, you know, gunpowder and ozone. Oh, that's cool. Or 
something and try to do it with a more um, intangible um, rather than, you know, the thing. You know, yes, in my mind, I know that this person is played by Tom Hardy. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> <I'm not>. <laughs> <laughs> see my wife smiling back there because she, she Tom Hardy kissed her so it's, uh, it's at one point in our it's lives. It's interesting uh, for me uh, with, with with Game Shadows. Uh, it's a it's a fantasy novel, um, real world, but it it's uh, urban fantasy. But it's it still goes into a lot of it's set in Celtic mythology. So there's a lot of characters I I had to take from there. So it was easy for me because it was blue people and and you know like I can. I can shake it up that direction. Um, in the comic series, it has to be a real slice of life. And so what I find is that I, it, it's amazing working with artists because I actually have to describe somebody down to their dimples, you know, head mm -hmm. to toe. So I tend to be an over-describer in many ways. And um, I, I, I'm from, I live in Culver City, California, which is part of L, sort of LA, but it's separate. And, you know, I'm from an extremely diverse, I think our schools are the fourth most diverse in the country. So, you know, it's just, that's what my characters tend to look like, you know, especially when you're talking about um, comics. Because I, I you know, right? have to do that. There are a lot of TV studios in there. Yeah, area. Sony's in Culver City. Yeah. Yeah. Laurel Hamilton um, says, you know, Anita Blake looks like Laurel Hamilton. Um, and it's because uh, Anita Blake, the character, has all of these physical things she has to be able to do. So Laurel has to be able to do those things so she can describe them. And so she deliberately made her character her size, her shape, her level of strength, you know, so that, so that she can do these martial arts moves or throws or whatever and, and have it be realistic on the page. Well, and it's, I'm five feet tall. Well, I have heels on, so maybe five two right now. And so for me, I, writing a six foot tall woman would be impossible. I don't even know what it's like to be able to reach the dishes at the top of the counter. You know, I have to climb up on the counter to get the dishes. So I can combine it, it yeah, to that point. It's, it's uh, as far as lead characters, maybe that's um, why my next series is I have a question uh, about people talking. Now, when you're writing your characters' dialogue, you don't want them all to sound exactly alike, obviously. How do you develop unique voices for your characters? Do you have characters talk like people you know, or do you start from scratch and say this person would do this and that and the other thing? Or I start um, with their backstory, kind of who these characters are. In Game of Shadows, uh, the the main character is a kid who's really obnoxious. You know, he's sort of like Nick in the Chronicles of Nick and Percy and Percy Jackson. He just never does anything anyone tells him. So that, in a weird way, that was easy because I have a kid and I know what that's like. And he's that age, and you just want to kill him all the time. And so, you know, it was that part was really easy for me. But then the, it was the other voices. There's a there's a character named named Captain Bartlett who's basically been his bodyguard since he's when he was in Los Angeles, and he's old and crotchety. And it was only developing his backstory that then lent itself to his his own personal voice in the characters because his, his impressions of things, um, having lost a son in a war, having family who hasn't seen him for 14 years because he's been following this kid around, he's completely not grateful at all and he's going back to, to having disappeared all these years. 
you know, it, it, you had to had to figure out who was left. You know, who how who was he before, and then who is he after, and then his voice came out. And I think that's probably why we like Snape and Dumbledore because in a weird way. She, you have Harry, and then you have all these other people who are coming into his life in a different way, and, and how do you make them unique? And I feel like the backstory tends to do that. Well, speaking of, back, you know, backstory, friend story, and and you know, also this is, it's analogous to less description, more description. Well, more description is like backstory. Less description is like the immediate, you know, step into the novel, boom, and, and action. For the audience, I mean, what for what makes a compelling character for you? If you pick up a book uh, and and you step right into the story, does that make you want to read the backstory, or would you rather tend to read the backstory that will make you want to advance into a, a conflict situation? Because I tell you know the conventional wisdom is start with the action, do the backstory later. And yet these backstories are very popular with some people. So which comes first? Which is chicken, which is egg? I just want to throw that out there for you guys. A good examples, has anyone read The Bone Season? Smith, Shannon? Okay, amazing British, young. I think she was, she was like the woman who wrote Divergent, sold her first novel, I think when she was a senior at Oxford. Um, I read the first you know, five pages of the book and the entire thing is just about this character's backstory, which is a British way. A lot of the Eng English writers, I don't know if it's all you know, like Scotland, UK, but um, it was fascinating because if I had done that, I would have gotten a note from my editor that would have been like, can't you just put this in later? Start yeah. a story already. So what and, do the readers think? That's yeah. what I wonder. Because I know what the conventional wisdom is, is what you're saying. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. What do you read? Readers, I want to see. Who likes who likes to jump right in and who likes to see the five pages or ten pages of development? I like the conflict or the bad situation and then fall in love with the character along the journey. Okay. And then hopefully get some backstory of why the character's cool. Okay. That's what they do. Yeah. I think for me it's the voice. Um, I don't care what happens in the beginning. If I fall in love with the voice of the writer, I would, they would take me anywhere. Something like Daughter of the Forest. Have you read that? No. Julia. Yeah, like somebody who's, yeah, the beautiful prose, like incredible prose. Or even if it's just um, like, uh, oh gosh, the guy who did Christopher Moore. You know, he's just yeah. so cheeky. He's funny. I, I'll go with him anywhere, you know, from the second that uh, the Emperor of San Francisco uh, used his scepter to urinate against the uh, dumpster, I was like, okay, I'll go with you anywhere because I've never seen this before. I'm with you, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just the voice and the cheekiness of it and the subversiveness of it. Okay. Yeah, I'll go with that. One real quick note from a purely mercenary standpoint. Um, most of us get a lot of our book sales on Amazon, and a lot of those sales come from what people see in that in that blip, in that preview. And Amazon marketing people tell me, I know because Amazon is indirectly my publisher, tell me that the jump into the, the in medias race, grab them by the gonads for the first page uh, introduction is, going to, is more likely to sell more books. 
So either you like it more, you guys might be, you know, you guys might be exceptions of the rule, but I will tell you statistically, that is where the money is for people like us. And that's and that's what I tend to say is even though people say they love backstory, what they really mean is once they've fallen in love with the character, then they want more, uh, yeah. more, more. They don't actually fall in love with the backstory, right? Yeah. Well, the the what she said about the voice is true, where the where the author's voice is. But I, my disappointment in seeing something on Amazon or in book where you start off with this action scene, okay, this is this is something, this is okay, but then you get. 30 pages of stuff that's so boring <laughs> that you just say, I'm never buying that author again. So you're saying they start with an action scene, but then they go, then they, they go to they the backstory afterwards. Yeah, too they much. go to a, to a really boring, poorly told backstory, uh-huh. and I'm never buying them again. Well, so I would, I would really rather have the backstory <laughs> yeah. first to find out if I like the author and the characters than, than the action scene. Well, what about if you start off with an action scene and then what comes next is not backstory, but simply necessary, relevant narrative that puts you, brings you up to the next action, and backstory is woven in woven as in, in, in flashbacks. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, and, or, and those, those work. Yeah. yeah, well, and part of the techniques, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you have a, a little more word count, you know, on adult novels, you know, when you're writing for YA or middle grade, there, there, there's set limits to that, and you you find yourself, and I think Rick Rudin's the genius at this, of really being concise in a sentence and putting, you know, the adjectives really well placed and describing everything, so there's one sentence of describing a, a, a room as opposed mm-hmm. to, like, a paragraph or two or three paragraphs and when it comes to backstory a lot of times what just because I've been writing for younger people a lot um, it's funny because there's the old school way where, where you pick up a wrinkle in time and there'd be three pages of a of backstory on something and now it literally has to be woven into the conversation of what you're having because there's not enough time to tell that to, to just nobody's got the attention span. I mean, everybody's been watching too much TV and playing video games and watching YouTube. And there's a great um, British series. Um, it's shelved in middle grade. Um, uh, if you're a Jonathan Stroud, mm-hmm. the Lockwood and Co. series, some of the best horror series I've ever read in my life. Probably why I have. And uh, DJ McHale is good. But what he does is, and this is a very, very British, is that he, you leap right into the you know big confrontation with scary ghosts that if it touches you, you are dead. And um, you get that, you get to the climax of the scene, and then he stops. And then you get the 30 pages of backstory. But it's so good that you're not angry. Yeah, he's he's one of the best I've seen. Neil Gaiman's great book is very uh, poignant on that. You know, he starts off with a scene. Literally, the first sentence, because I was actually looking at it recently, is from the perspective of the knife that's doing the murdering in the first three pages. And it's fantastic. So you start out with this paragraph about him, about this knife, and you're like, this is the craziest thing I've ever read. And then all of a sudden you realize it's a guy in a house whose job is to murder everyone in the house, and he's wandering around, and all of a sudden the crib where the last one is left is empty. 
And so that's your launching point for well, where where did this toddler just wander off? What kind of a toddler would wander off? So now you're curious about this kid, and then he jumps into the perspective of the kid. Terry Pratchett does that with uh, the Wintersmith. Um, the book opens with what was what would essentially be the first couple of paragraphs of the final chapter. Yeah, the book and, then they back. Yeah, and yeah. then you go back and you set it all up so that by the time you hit that point, I hate it when I do that to you. Now. Oh, <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> but this I was crazy. just thinking that. <laughs> but this is Terry Pratchett. I like, know. No, it's Forty-eight hours early. Binge watch. Yes. <laughs> I mean, really? Don't do that to me. No, that's yeah. why I have not seen one episode of Game of Thrones yet. Oh, no. I'm waiting until it's done. Yeah. <laughs> NCIS does that all the time. I just I can't watch it. It's too much real life. Um, but that's, you know, it's funny because when uh, I have to co-write a lot, too. So when we're creating characters, I write a comic series on Webtoon called Firebrand, that legendary desk of Jessica Chobot. And... Um, when we, we were sitting down creating the characters, like, I got the impression that some of them were Jessica. You know what I mean? So there's that. You're going through, and well, I wouldn't. She's like, she wouldn't really say that. And I'm like, no, she really would. You know, this isn't you. And it's really kind of funny to, to have to go through and, and um, as an exercise, just take a peek. You know, I don't know if you've seen these worksheets. They have them online, creating characters where you're literally, you know, you start out with, what they look like physically and then what their backstory is and if you use Scrivener as a writing device they actually have these templates directly in there which is fascinating to me um, and then uh, it does talk to you a little bit about the internal and the external journey which you know for me no matter what it is um, but that's all very structured I think that, that there's always there's always has to be, always has to be a little something a little je ne sais quoi that makes that takes that character where you can fill in all those blanks, kind of like painting by numbers, and then all of a sudden it clicks in the readers or the viewers' mind. Yeah, because there are definitely characters I've seen, and, and I, televisions and movies easier to talk about because they're usually more universal. So I usually go to Star Wars, not because I'm a huge Star Wars fan, because it's easy to reference. But I think of Star Wars is like, uh, okay, you're supposed to, you've got Luke, and you're supposed, you know, Luke is supposed to be the hero. But who does everybody really love? As far as who do you want in the scenes? Who do you want to see on the screen? Han Solo. Han Solo and? Leia. Oh, no, Darth Vader. Darth Vader. Those are your two guys, right? Okay, so you've got your sort of anti-hero, semi-hero, and then your, your villain. And those are the ones that you that you really want to see on screen, frankly. And and Luke is kind of a water carrier. Well, and me. really, does anyone know who Obi Wan really is? I mean, there's nothing to me about him yet that I found. No, that's it's not so much that it's does anybody me. care. Well, that character was the wizard. Does anybody? He was Gandalf. He was the wizard, but he had to die, and then he had to come back. I know, but he has no. Like, I, I, there, there's a romance, I think, in the Clone Wars, like they do. Yeah. And I haven't read all the novels because I did that for a long time. Um, but I, I will say that, it, you know, to me, that is the one character I keep waiting. I'm like, there's got to be something that's going to come out about Obi-Wan. That character could have been, like, been so interesting. Even, yeah. even in that first movie, there could have been so much more done with him and he's just a cipher he's just 
generic mentor mm -hmm. who has this nifty set of generic semi-magical skills mm -hmm. and has a cool sword <laughs> and oh and the great accent you know yeah. uh, the great accent that's great actor. you know exactly for a thousand years oh, old. oh yay <laughs> Oh, nice. Oh, for a thousand generations, Jedi kept order in the galaxy. But I mean, you know, he's a good example. If you were going to give, uh, you know, Obi Wan a backstory, what would it be? You know, where would it start? We have some of it because we know who his Jedi Master was and that he died. But go further back. Does anyone know what planet he was born on? Does anyone know? Everybody care. No, no, but I would <laughs> care if I did. They didn't make us care. A, 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 I'm sorry, I was too minter character yeah. that we don't know a whole lot about. Do you ever watch Rick and Morty? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the character of Rick, you know, he is an amazing character. He's a fascinating mm -hmm. character. We don't know much about him. We know a little bit. You know, we know as much about Rick as we know about Obi-Wan, and everybody likes Rick. And Obi-Wan is just... <laughs> Have you ever seen the samurai and the princess? The Akira, Kur the Akira Kurosawa movie that sort of inspired, I can't remember the name of the character, but the young samurai's mentor in The Samurai and the Princess is infinitely more interesting than Obi-Wan and has less screen time. Yeah. Anybody seen Marco Polo? Hundred, yeah. hundred Eyes? Yeah. You know, Hundred Eyes, the, the blind uh, weapons master, far more interesting than Marco Polo ever was. And he ended up getting his own one-hour special out of it. Yeah. But again, as the opposite of Obi Wan, as you said, Obi Wan is like, eh, who cares? Han Solo, yay! Are you here to kick us out already? Does anybody have any questions? Yeah, please. Questions. Uh, for each of you guys, briefly, what makes a character compelling to you? Mm. My favorite characters are always ones that do something completely unexpected for their for who they are. So it doesn't matter, you know. I guess I guess you know. I've been watching Stranger Things, not the second season yet, because I finished the first season and I have I'm in the middle of the deadline. And if I don't finish it, can't watch second season yet. But you know, Eleven was a very compelling character. She hardly spoke. We don't know anything about her. Speaking of, and to me that. That, that mystery makes it, but also her bravery. And you know, who she is as a person is is what I want to see as part. It's one of my favorite movies so far This in all of the Avengers movies has been the Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man movie, because that kid is so real. You know, he's just a sophomore in high school who is in a suit and flying around the city and can't get a date. And, there's just something a so certain weird. level you have to be able to identify with them personally. Yeah. Like, I mean, Ender's Game, you know, especially yeah. when we were young. Ender, yeah, yeah, yeah. the bullied kid from school yeah. who was smarter than everybody else. A lot of us geek culture people tend to be smarter than everybody else, or at least think we were, <laughs> and uh, and get bullied and get get you know crapped on and stuff. Yeah. And so we identify with Ender or some other of these. Yeah, YA, you know, a lot of the YA heroes and heroines tend to be outcasts in some form. Yeah. You know. One thing that does it for me, in addition to these things, which really are very important, one thing that does it for me is every time I encounter that character, I learn something new about him or her, even if it's just 
they do something that says something about their character. And when they're done, I'm left wanting more. I still don't know that person as well as I want to know them, and I never will know that person as well as I want to know them. There's always more. That kind of, my kind of goes along with that, is I want a character that thinks. Yep. Um, and, you know, I want a character that makes a decision and questions that decision. Did they do the right thing? Even if they know they did the right thing. Maybe they did the only thing. Um, and if they're not thinking about what's going on around them, so that I get bored. You know, um, I don't eh, help. You know, I, ooh, wait, can I do that? What will happen if I do this? Okay, you know, I just killed this guy that I had to kill. Now I have to learn. You know, and I want that. Um, and there's a difference between a thinker and a quiet character. Because I always, it's <laughs> funny, I, uh, uh, it, it, quiet characters are very difficult. And to, to work with them, they're thinkers a lot of times, but to work with them as a protagonist, as your main character is actually very difficult. Um, someone who just sort of like Jack Reacher notices everything as opposed to reacts, you know, a lot. It's hard to work with as a protagonist. I just read a series and um, the, uh, the main character, the POV character, had some jealousy issues and made some decisions and, you know, did some things that were really not okay. But because we were in her head, you know, you understand why she's doing the things she's doing. You understand where she's second guessing. You understand this. And the author had in the second book um, a non POV character doing some of the similar things, making the similar decisions. And um, I despised that character because he's a jerk. Whereas, you know, the, the POV character might have done the same kinds of things, but because I know why. Right. Then they're likable. It's like the guy from, um, I'm blanking on the character's name, I shouldn't, um, from Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. I mean, that, yes, that character was burning, he was bad, you know, fundamentally bad when we meet him. We don't really know that yet about him, we don't know why it's going on. Or Clockwork um, Orange. But, yeah, yeah. But, but what guy. a transition, right? That they, you know, excuse me, but yeah. I think we're about. So you got kicked out. out. Yeah, you got the five minute signal about four minutes. <laughs> oh, did we? I didn't even see it. Yeah, he opened the door and he held out five, and I nodded back at him. We actually have nine minutes to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give him a couple well, more. Any other uh, questions? The, 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 According to the internet servers, let's give you uh, time to talk about yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. Well, I'm. I know that I'm eight seconds slow because I have a time fetish. <laughs> I was raised by a television director. You did something five seconds late in Harvey Hansinger's world. You were late. <laughs> one, I guess one one answer though about which ones we think are most compelling is we don't always know. At least I don't always know as an author. I've got. You know, you've got these certain characters, and you, they fill certain roles because you usually have some relatively conventional hero, straightforward, and like I said, usually a thinker in my book. Thinkers are always good. Sherlock Holmes, there's your ultimate thinking, compelling character, and Watson is just there to record things. But but we, I don't think we always know. I think we, we make characters and we assemble sort of a team. Unless it's unless you're determined that it's going to be one character that goes through adventures and everything swaps around. And, she or he gets it to the other end 
having people die along. Now that's one type of narrative. My, mine tend to have a swirling number of different teams because mine are adventure and military and so these people change and I have different scenes. I don't always know. So sometimes as I'm going along, I'll suddenly realize this was, a, okay, example. Wow. My first book I ever wrote, rewrote it 30 times, Eden Plague. Very con relatively conventional hero, former uh, veteran, kicked out of the service, kind of a little bit crazy, got a drug problem. Uh, stuff happens, uh, ends up heading towards science fiction with the plague. Uh, but there's a minor character that appears near the end of the book. I, five books in, I wrote her her own book, pushed it back and made it book two, and then put her in every single book afterwards, and she's now pretty much everybody's favorite character. So sometimes you just don't know. You don't know who's going to end up as the best character, or the had, most I compelling character. I have a character in, in a series that I've got, and um, he's the protagonist of book three. Yeah. He was supposed to be a walk-up. Right. And yet, somehow they grab you, and, or they yeah. grab the readers. And sometimes it's good to keep them small, though, too. Like in Firebrand, we have a character named Prin, who's just one of the other... It's about witches in Seattle, and um, the she's the character that is, to me, like the person in high school who would drive me nuts, who was always perfectly dressed and had the perfect shoes and the perfect outfit, and but she's she's and she's overly sarcastic, but she's actually got a really amazing heart, and somehow that resonated in a way that we actually didn't um, didn't count on and. With, with Webtoon, you go in, and I don't know if you guys know what this is, it's a free app in the US, and um, it's a Korean company, and it's all the stuff in there is free. So there's, you know, 25,000 comments in seconds as your chapter goes up, it's shocking, right? But it was amazing to see how they all just fell in love with print, and I was like, wow. And, but the idea of giving her own story, I'm like, I don't know, you know, it's this Natalie story, and I feel bad, I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've got a character who's basically my main character's boss. He, his name is Admiral Luigi Hornmeyer. And he's sort of a General Patton plus uh, Halsey plus a little bit of Robert E. Lee plus a little bit of um, uh, what's his, uh, Curtis LeMay kind of rolled into one. And he's just supposed to be a big character. And I get more mail about about Admiral Hornmeyer because I get about all my other characters put together. He has this gift for cursing. You motherfucking pieces of... And, and it's funny. He insults people in this funny. You know, this has to be done with celerity. Now, I'm not talking about crunchy vegetables. And you know, people love him, but I can't give Hornmeyer his own book. Why not? It would just be too loud. <laughs> Well, we should probably wrap it up. I think we should. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening.